0: When you take away the sugar, you can finally discover the real sweetness in your life. I'm your host, Netta Gorman, and today I'm talking to my friend Molly Painshab, who is a mental health professional, an addiction strategist, a behavior specialist, and certified international food addiction counselor, whose background is an addiction, but not necessarily food or sugar addiction. In fact, what led her into the world of food addiction was her own experience that she'll talk about in this episode. We'll get to our chat in just a minute. But just before, I wanted to thank you for listening to this podcast, for giving it a lovely five-star rating, and if you haven't already, for giving it a review. And if you're wondering how to leave a review, go to your podcast player, scroll down and click on write a review. All right, so here's my chat with Molly. All right, so today I'm talking with Molly Paynechab, And Molly, can you tell me a little bit about what your life was like when you were still eating all the sugary things?
1: Yeah. Um, I guess I'll take it back to probably the worst part of it, which was right before I got off of all of the the sugar and the things, um, or kind of I started that journey. So I was in my early 30s. I had two children. They were, you know, four and one. Um, and I was a hundred pounds more than I am today. Um, I had constant migraines, um, TMJ, my jaw would get stuck open or shut to the point where I would have to go to the emergency room or walk in urgent care and get muscle relaxers just to be able to close my mouth. Um I couldn't go up and down the stairs in my own house. My bedroom was upstairs. I mean, it was just, it was painful. I couldn't get on the floor with my children. Um, I was always angry um, and irritable um and then i would have to go to work as a mental health and addiction therapist and help people right so it was pretty miserable um i also had been at the age of 28 ish 27 28 i had been diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome and so um i had been on and off some medications like metformin and some other things that i don't even remember now um to even help me get pregnant um you know so And I had gestational diabetes with my first, um, and which was actually controlled with just diet. And funny enough, when you have gestational diabetes, they, they bring your carb limit to 150 grams, which was significantly reduced from what I had been eating. Like today I'm like, holy cows, 150 grams of (laughs) carbs. Like that's a lot for me. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so it was managed by just counting carbs and, um, testing my blood sugar like four or five times a day. I never had to go on insulin for that, which was good. But what did come of that is, um, it put me at an, uh, increased risk of developing type two. So once you have gestational diabetes, any of that, it, it like increases your risk by like 50%. So my husband was listening to the Joe Rogan experience and I am not a Joe Rogan fan, um, for anybody who knows him, he, he's very controversial, um, I'm just not a fan, but he was listening to the podcast and Sean Baker had to, happened to have been on for that. And he had been a year carnivore at that point. And the two of them were talking about keto and carnivore and the topic of polycystic ovarian syndrome came up and that kind of thing. And my husband asked me to just have an open mind and listen to this very specific episode. And I did. Um, and that was probably in October, September or October of 2017. So I took about a month of like doing some more research because I wasn't just going to take Joe Rogan's word for it, because again, yeah. I'm not a fan. <laughs> so I, I did some research, um, on this whole keto thing and whatever else. And I decided on November 3rd that I would start a 21 day, just keto experiment because I could do anything for 21 days. And in 2017, Um, the 22nd day was American Thanksgiving. So I was like, whatever, at the end of 21 days, then I'll just have my American Thanksgiving and, um, no harm, no foul or whatever. Um, but it worked so well that by the time I hit those 21 days, um, the depression and anxiety that I thought I had under control were so much more under control. Like I didn't even realize how much I was still suffering with those things, Um, I hadn't had a migraine in three weeks when I was typically having multiple a week. Um, I was moving better. I had dropped a significant amount of weight. I think something like 10 or 15 pounds in those first three weeks, just because that inflammation, right? Just shedding off of me. Um, And I remember telling my husband that I felt so good that I didn't care if I didn't lose another pound, I was going to continue to not consume like that amount of carbs that I had been consuming. Now, keep in mind at this time, I was still consuming sugar because I was doing like a, if it fits your macros version of keto. Again, I'm not aware of sugar addiction, food addiction. Like I have no idea that even exists. And at the time, right. I am a licensed, still am licensed mental health and licensed addiction counselor. No clue. So I'm following this gal on social media and she picks up a copy of Vera's book, Food Junkies, and says, for anybody who's following me, I just picked up this book. It's changed my life. Consider reading it. And I did because, again, my addiction counselor self was interested and i read it and um after that i put down sugar totally um flour totally which had pretty much gone um with the exception of some like almond flour and coconut flour you know those keto alternatives that are yeah. out there um and then i found vinny tortorich with his no sugar no grains which just kind of made it clearer and clearer and ken berry with the proper human diet and like the ways the doctors lie to you so it just kind of progressively um became more and more clear to me that what had actually happened is that, you know, I had become physically addicted to these food substances. Um, And so that, that was my life before. And then after, since then, it's just progressively gotten better, but it was pretty bleak. Um, before I, you know, my husband was just like, just try this one last thing, you know, and, and for him, it wasn't even about the weight or anything. It was just, I was miserable yes. and he was like, oh my gosh, I just love you. And I want you to be okay. Aww. And we have these small children, you know, who need you to be okay. So yeah. So that's, that was what it was like. It was just, it was pretty sad <laughs> and very different than what it is today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And did you consider at the time that you were just eating normally what you would consider like your definition of normal? Has it changed now?
1: It has. It has. Because at the time I was eating normally for a, a standard American diet right. Where, um, I was eating breads and pastas and grains and potatoes. And I was having the Doritos with my sandwich at lunch. And, um, I was having ice cream and cake and cook, you know, whatever, like any of those things, anytime my husband was eating those, right. Like thinking about like the normal quote unquote, normal people around me, I was mimicking what they were doing, but I was gaining weight and I was getting sicker mentally, physically, emotionally. Right. And they were seemingly okay. So I didn't know what was wrong with me. Part of it is the PCOS, which, which, which comes with, um, you know, some pretty significant insulin resistance and some other things with like the liver and whatever else. So, um, there are some medical complications that do make it easier for me to put on the weight and have more metabolic consequences than somebody who doesn't have those things. But I just felt like I wasn't, I wasn't like a binger, right? Like I wasn't closet binging. I wasn't eating whole tubs of peanut butter or whatever, you know, like you hear the stories and and it just, it's not my truth. I just wasn't doing that. I was probably overeating the things that I was eating for sure, but nothing that where I was spending lots of money, hiding, throwing away things so that nobody knew that kind of thing.
0: Right. So you didn't have those types of addictive behaviors. Is that okay for me to call them addictive? Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that they're, I mean, fully believe that there are addictive qualities to eating disorder behaviors. Absolutely.
0: Sure. And you were eating those um, processed foods that are engineered in a lab to be addictive. Mm -hmm. And that is what we consider normal in our twisted society. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean,
1: breakfast was some form of cereal or bread, like product, whether it be French toast or pancakes or, you know, toast in general, biscuits and gravy, you know, whatever. It was always something like that. When you think of like going to like a, an American truck stop or a diner, right? Like kind of that food selection. That's what I was eating mostly because that's what I was raised on with my single parent mother when I was with my dad, I was actually raised on like steak and potatoes and vegetables. So it's really interesting. When I went to live with him as a younger child, um, I actually lost weight just eating what he was eating, but then was, you know, put back in my mother's house and it changed again right where we were eating things like goulash and hamburger help like things right like lots of casserole she's from the midwest lots of casseroles that would feed the family of four or five how many ever of us there were at that given time for multiple meals right so yeah um yeah oh, so yeah. i was just eating normally quote unquote
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and this whole concept of our definition of normal you know, because my definition of normal has changed since I cut sugar, you know, and you have a background that I certainly don't have, which is in addiction um, or addiction. What What is what is that the formal name for your background? Yeah, so
1: I have a master's of science in mental health counseling, and then I am licensed as a clinical professional counselor, which is mental health, and I'm licensed as an addiction
0: counselor. Okay. And in your studies, I mean that is a lot of years of university studies about yeah. addiction. Yeah. At any time in your studies at university did they mention food? Not that I remember. I mean
1: it may have been in a run-on sentence at some point but there was never any sort of module or chapter or lecture at all. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like had I had that experience um I would have picked up on it a lot sooner
0: yeah yeah and so was it now that you know more about it and you've been in the food addiction world if you look back was it absent from your university studies because it wasn't on their radar or because they were denying its existence even though they knew it was something it was a thing
1: yeah I think it's, I think it's a little of both because we know that back in the seventies and eighties, even in the nineties, there were treatment facilities, inpatient treatment facilities that were treating, treating other substances of abuse and treating food addiction. And then something politically changed. And those, um, that coverage went away. Those institutions went away. Um, and we know books like sugar blues, um, you're white and deadly, right? We know that there are books that have been around for a very long time. I mean, um, even uh, Banting, right? Banting was written like in the yeah. 1800s or something. Yeah. Um, so we know it's been around for a long time. So I think it was a little bit of both. I think there was some political shifting. Um, and so it was like, oh, this isn't real and we'll push it under under the rug. But I also think that the research that we have today, even just in the last five years, since I you know, have started my journey has blown up you know, so I think it's, it's kind of a combination of both.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so now you have a lot more experience um, with food addiction and more specifically with sugar addiction, because not all food is recognized as being addictive. That's
1: right. That's right. And food that, addiction is a bit, is a bit broad. Yeah, it's a bit
0: broad. And I would even argue that real food isn't addictive anyway, and that right. I don't grace sugar with, with the term food. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. But, but, you know, let's not get into the semantics. Yep. <laughs> Don't get agreed. me
1: started on semantics. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, we could go on and on about that for sure.
0: And and so I just said, let's not get into semantics. But actually, I want to talk with you today about the the knowledge that you have of making the distinction between normal, you know, eating normally or a normal eater and then a harmful user of sugar i would i would imagine um then an abuser of sugar and then what you call chemically dependent or you know more more generally known as an addict for mm-hmm. sugar specifically for sugar rather than for food in general can, yeah. can we make that distinction absolutely so
1: i think first when we think about the term normal we have to remember that normal is relative so you may be normal or eating normally based on who is around you, like who is with your culture, you know, the people living within your home, school, whatever it might be, right? So normal, quote unquote, normal eaters. um, When we think of things like substances such as sugar or any of those ultra processed things where it's like a sugar combination, something, right. That makes it more hyper palatable. When we think of somebody who might fall into the normal category, this might be somebody who easily moderates, who can take a bite or two of the cookie and put it down and leave it. Or maybe just has one whole cookie, puts it down, doesn't touch another one, um, for quite a while. Doesn't think about, right. Like put it down, walk away. Isn't thinking about that cookie and wanting more. So that is kind of like a brief or like basic understanding of like what a normal eater might be. When we think about a harmful user, this is somebody who might, um, you know, uh, overindulge at a holiday or maybe um, is going through a really tough emotional thing, a breakup, some sort of grieving, um, or maybe even celebratory. And they overindulge on the things, right? So I always think of like the the Thanksgiving like memes of you know everybody wearing their stretchy pants or like undoing their belt kind of thing. So that's more of like a harmful user where it's it's excessive, it's unnecessary. You've eaten past full, but it's like celebratory or something in some way. An abuser um, of something like sugar, ultra processed items where that sugar is in combination with some other things might be somebody who, and I like to think of this as the person who, um, you know, struggles to cope, um, in some way, shape or form, maybe they have a really stressful job. They have a really stressful life, whatever it might be. And I always think of it as, as like kind of like the person who comes home and drinks like three, three to six beers at the end of the day, every day, right? So this might be you coming home and you're you're waiting for those cookies or those cakes or ice cream, or maybe even it's several bowls of pasta, right? Um, because that breaks down into sugar. And again, I'm not trying to get into this debate of food and that kind of thing. But the way that some of these ultra processed things break down very much impacts our insulin and and our livers and just metabolically very similar to pure sugar. And so an abuser might be somebody who is using it as an emotional coping mechanism very regularly. Like there's, there's very little break to it and they don't really know how to cope outside of that.
0: That sounds like what I used to do. Sure. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and you, when you, once you realized it, right, you were able to say like, okay, there are some things I want to do. Now that, now any of these, the normal user, the harmful user, the, the abuser have that kind of quality. They're like, whoa, like, right. Their eyes might be open for some reason, some life-changing event may have happened. And they're able to reassess what's going on and say, you know, is this getting me closer to what I want? Is this the most healthy or helpful thing I can be doing? If it's not, I'm willing to put it down or really decrease my use, right? So there are people who can really like reduce, um, maybe learn how to moderate, right? They can work with somebody, whether it be a nutritionist, dietitian, a coach, a trusted other to learn how to moderate those things. But what can happen then is that there, you know, when we think about the American society of addiction medicine and how they define the disease of addiction, they talk about it impacting our brain. Now I'm not smart enough to have the entire thing memorized that definition, but it's out there. So you can very quickly, easily Google it. But what has been formally recognized by ASAM or the American society of addiction medicine is that um, it changes the brain. So once the the brain has been changed, Now we've moved into what used to be called chemically dependent, um, and has now been changed to substance use disorder, right? So the word addiction does not exist in a clinical text as a diagnosis, if that makes sense. Um, what we do use is substance use disorder. And there is again, another spectrum within there where it can be on the mild side. So you only meet two or three criteria. There are 11. Um, There is moderate, where you meet four or five, and then there's severe, where you meet six or more.
0: All right, so I just want to take a quick break to read a couple of reviews of the Life After Sugar podcast. And this one comes from Sugarless Life For Me. And she says, I've been going off sugar for three months now and was looking for positive things to help with my motivation. I found this podcast and it's just what I needed. Everything they talk about is what I'm feeling and struggling with. It's so helpful and is reaffirming my decision to live my life sugar-free. That's fantastic. And here's another review from Diane in the UK. So enjoy my weekly Life After Sugar podcasts. I'm learning so much from each one I listen to every week. This week's one totally resonated with me so, so much. And it's just so inspirational for a sugar addict like I was. Netta you're just amazing. And you're so inspiring. Thank you for all you're doing in helping people like myself. Thank you, Diane. And I want to thank all my guests so far for telling their inspiring stories too. And if you want to rate this podcast too, just scroll down and tap on the five stars. And if you want to leave a review, click on leave a review. Thank you. All right, let's get back to my chat with Molly.
1: So um, once we've crossed into that, the brain has changed. And as we know, with any type of brain injury, we can't fix a brain injury, right? The damage is done. The brain doesn't repair in that way. What we can do is create new neural pathways. So we have what's called neuroplasticity. So when I'm working with somebody who has the disease of addiction, and it doesn't matter if it's sugar or meth, right? A lot of the things that we work on are to um, use this neuroplasticity to our advantage and create new neural pathways so that we can learn new coping skills, new ways of living our life, almost as if they've had a brain injury and are teaching themselves how to walk or talk or feed themselves again. It's not quite that extreme a lot of the times, right? But it's a similar idea.
0: Fascinating. Okay, so it's really because most of us or most people that I've been talking to over the last few years that I've been in this sugar world, we identify ourselves as sugar addicts but we don't make any of these distinctions because, well, for myself, I didn't even know they existed. But the term sugar addict is widely used by a whole range That's of people. Right. Yeah. yeah, And I've, I mean, obviously, you know, how you see yourself has um, little bearing on how sort of the medical world sees you. But the fact of the matter is a lot more people identify themselves as sugar addicts than are officially sugar addicts. Is that Does that sound accurate?
1: I would say so, because again, so like addict, so we have to remember there are words that get used, um, inappropriately, um, maybe that's the wrong word, but so in the, again, please remember my background is also mental health, right? So when I work with clients and they're like, oh, I'm so bipolar, or I'm so depressed, or I'm so crazy or schizo, right? So a lot of these words that have been used clinically get taken and used in just common speech, right? In how we're showing up and talking. So, but the thing about the word addict that's so interesting is that I cannot diagnose anybody as an addict. That's not a thing. I can't diagnose anybody as an alcoholic. I can't do that. These are words that these are labels that we give ourselves, right? That we own ourselves. And so you're right. Anybody can use it. But I think where it gets confusing is that there is a sect of professionals in the sugar and food addiction world that very much believe that the word addiction needs to be part of a diagnostic label. And so there can be Um, you know, conflict because of that. But I personally, as a clinician, I honestly don't care what label you use for yourself because I don't work within the framework of labels. If those labels work for you for one reason or another, for identification purposes or whatever it might be, that's fine. It doesn't change how I'm going to show up and work with you.
0: Yeah, that's powerful, because I find that for a lot of people, their their own label of being a sugar addict disempowers them, makes them feel powerless, because they're like, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm a lost case. And I think it's powerful to educate ourselves by listening to this particular episode of the podcast, amongst other things, to know that, wait, there's a sliding scale of relationships with sugar. That's right. That's right. Because we can think
1: about it either in those terms of normal, harmful, abuser, chemically, or we can think of it as like mild, moderate, severe, right? So Netta, I didn't know you before you stopped using sugar, but had you come to me and we went through the 11 criteria, 11 diagnostic criteria of the DSM, you may have met two or three of those criteria, right? Which meant you would have fallen on the mild side but you were able to arrest that and turn it around. And you did that by stopping sugar, not because you were worried that you were going to become, you know, this dreaded word addict, but because for, for other reasons.
0: Yeah. And actually I just thought I was normal. I didn't have any kind of negative self identity. I actually had a positive identity with relation to my relationship with sugar because I was the dessert queen and I was you know the cake maker and the chocolate lover and the ketchup user and it was all part of a positive identity for me I didn't feel I was suffering until Mm -hmm. I started suffering and it wasn't even I didn't even make the connection that I was suffering because of sugar I was suffering because I wasn't going to the toilet every day there (laughs) you you go yeah And that's about as far as my analysis went. Right. Yeah. And so
1: that's where I think that you're, you're, you're nailing it, right? These labels can be powerful because they can help us go, Oh, I need treatment. And the treatment can look like this very specific thing or, or have an idea of it. Right. It's the same as like somebody saying like, this is the type of cancer somebody has, right. It's, stage, whatever level, blah, 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 whatever. And it's metastasized or it's not, you know, whatever, right. There are all kinds of ways to classify cancer. And that's really important because that's going to, um, determine what kind of protocol is used. But when we show up with, um, an addiction outlet, so a substance use disorder or a process behavioral addiction, right. Which some of those eating disorders have, um, components of the labels don't necessarily have the same effect because it's one it's one dopamine reward center it's one pain center it's one amygdala right there there are not all these different ways that it's it's going to show up in different ways as far as like is it meth is it sugar but the path and the behaviors that come from it are pretty predictable so label or not if it keeps you stuck My suggestion is to all my clients, don't use it. If it's helpful to you, use it. But keep in mind that some of the work that we do may make you question that. And not because I want you to question it, but because I'm going to be asking really good questions and you may start to question it yourself. So just be prepared for, you know, um, if you work with somebody like myself or Clarissa and there are many others like us out there, um, we may
0: blow your mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I do as well, not to take away your, not to steal your thunder. But yeah, that whole questioning, because of my background in teaching, you know, and just because I questioned everything, once I stopped sugar, I couldn't, it blew my mind. You know, what, what seemed to me to be an absence of any kind of air quotes problem. You know, I, I just found that the problems I was having, uh, including behavioral ones were normal. We we'll come back to this term of being normal, yeah. and then when I changed my behavior and my food, all of a sudden there was this new normal where the former normal was now like problematic.
1: Yeah, right. And again, that's why the word normal is pro- is problematic, and because it's so relative, right? So there are times when I might be talking to people, and I'll be like, "Oh, old Molly would have done this." current Molly does this new Molly is going to do that. And it, it's really, um, dysregulating for people. I think sometimes to hear me talk like that, but, but that's how I have to view it is like, Oh, that's old behavior. Like I'm different now. I couldn't go back if I wanted to, because I know different. Right. And I I don't know that that's everybody's truth, but I know for me that it I actually feel something different with my brain, right? Once, and this is how I've always been. Once I've known something, I can't unknow it. And there's something in me that's strong enough to say that's not your truth. And and we're not going back there. Like I could not imagine, now I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but there is, I today, to this day, do not imagine myself ever going back to eating Cool Ranch Doritos by the bag and, you know, making three batches of cookies and eating one while the other two are baking. You know, I just can't, see myself ever doing that. I have zero desire, you know, with all honesty, like that just does not appeal to me.
0: Yeah. And so, you know,
1: yeah. So future Molly, you know, I'm not exactly sure I've got ideas for her, but I know current Molly is like, yeah, I'm, I am satisfied with not eating sugar or ultra processed things
0: yeah yeah and it's like I think that's also empowering for people to hear that you know we're not stuck in who we are we can actually be the vector for change and we can change from the old Molly to the current Molly to the future Molly from the old Netta to the current Netta to the yeah. future Netta, uh, or fill in the blank for whatever your name is yeah. but that is for me listening totally empowering yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely.
1: And that's how I choose to live my life. And that's how I choose to work with clients is that I don't ever want to show up and say, well, you're powerless. So do what I say you have to do. Otherwise you're never going to get better. That's just not how I work. I'm all about self-determination. I'm all about empowering you to make the decisions, right? Because again, I'm not going to show up and say, well, Netta, you're an abuser. So I'm going to need you to stop doing that right now. Otherwise you are doomed to be a substance use disordered individual. I've never worked with clients since 2005. I've never once said that to a client. I'm not about to say that now, but what I do, but what I do want for people to know and understand is that no matter where you are on that spectrum, no matter where you are, that if you want it to be different, it can be different. The thing that matters about where you fall on that spectrum is the amount of help and support you may need in order for it to be different.
0: Yeah, yeah, that sounds just that hits the spot, you know. And the way that people talk to themselves, you know, is probably way more harmful than any um, addiction counsellor or even myself as a teacher or as a sugar-free person. You know, we we often do ourselves so much harm inside of our heads. Where, as you're saying, an addiction counsellor or a therapist or a teacher, whatever we'd never say all the awful things that we say to ourselves. Yeah. And so it's great to know that, you know, there's places that people can go for help, you know, if they're sort of relatively high on the addiction, is it a scale? Do you call it a scale?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, yes, it's, it's a severity. Yeah. Pendulum or scale, whatever word works, but I mean, it's, you know, again it it doesn't matter except for how right the intervention has to match the severity so if if you're very much on the severe end of things how we approach it is going to look very different than if you're on the you know zero (laughs) or mild end of things yes
0: and so it's great they are sorry for being such a weird nerd (laughs) no that's okay But, you know, it's just what my point is, it's great for people listening to know that if they are on the sort of severe end of the scale, they've got someone to go see like yourself. And if they're more on the mild to zero scale, um, they can come and see me. That's right. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's right. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's room for right. There's room for everybody to exist and there's help for all. more so today again than I think there was five years ago seven years I think you started seven years ago eight years ago a long time ago seven
0: years ago it was July 2015 yeah Yeah, who who knew I was only going to be for two weeks
1: right and here you are and And that's just it right and if you think back to when you started you know what was out there was probably very little there probably was something um but today there's I mean there's so much out there everybody's on the you know it's getting really ridiculous actually that the world health organization is denying <laughs> our attempts to get something on the books officially for some kind of diagnosis because they're right there's so many professionals out there now or coaches or you know programs that talk about detox from sugar well if we're calling it a sugar detox that means that you guys are noticing that there are withdrawal symptoms yeah that there's some kind of tolerance and that's one of the big things that we're fighting against right now is that we don't be- you know they don't believe that there are real effects to this withdrawal well there are
0: yeah yeah I mean them not believing it is inconsequential to the fact that it exists correct yeah <laughs>
1: yeah exactly so that's why we're treating it anyway right we're treating it anyway we don't again we don't need the label to just believe the people that we work with and show up and meet them where they're at and walk with them to wherever it is they want to be
0: fantastic fantastic um just to finish off can you tell people where they can get in touch with you if they feel they are on the severe end of the spectrum for sugar addiction
1: yeah, absolutely. So I have a web uh webpage, uh you, and you can spell it out Y O U or just the letter U.com. They'll both go to the same place. Um I am on Instagram at Molly Painshop. I'm on Twitter at Painshop Molly. I am on Facebook uh, at Molly Pain shop. Uh, I am a co-host of the food junkies podcast, so you can find us at food And I, there's an about page there for me, um, and for Clarissa and Vera as well. Um, I'm in the Facebook groups as an admin, honestly, you can email me, um, it all comes to one device, you know, so (laughs) people can WhatsApp me, I've got messages coming in from all Facebook Messenger, Instagram Messenger, WhatsApp, it doesn't matter, it all comes to the same place, so.
0: Fantastic, fantastic, yes, and you know, I, I just want to finish up today by saying it's so wonderful for me, who doesn't have your scientific background, I don't have a coaching background, I don't have, you know, a nutrition background, here I am, just not just, but sugar-free, and we are in the same general world, and we are complementary and not at all in competition, you no, know, yeah. mm-hmm. you have your expertise for the people that need you, I have my expertise for the people who need me, and we coexist in in this world of helping other people.
1: Yes, exactly,
0: yep, I love, love it. it. Yes, build the table longer. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Lovely analogy. Build the table longer. Lovely. All right. Thank you so much, Molly. It was wonderful talking to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, I love this chat with Molly, because not only are we both on the same side, as it were, in other words, in our own ways, we're both helping people to let go of sugar and find the real sweetness in life. But I love to hear Molly talk about the different levels of sugar addiction because let's face it, most of us self-identify as sugar addicts when we may not be addicted in the clinical sense of the word or we may be less addicted than we actually think we are. And I'm not just talking about the semantics of the word addiction, I'm talking about how we perceive ourselves and sometimes when we think we're powerless well, that kind of stops us from looking for help and implementing the help that's available to us. So this chat with Molly, I hope, has helped you as much as it has helped me. And I'll put all of Molly's details in the show notes with this episode. And I also have some free resources for you about what whole foods are and what the deal is with fermented foods and drinks on my website, aftersugarclub.com. Have a look at the three videos there that explain what real whole foods are and where to find them at the grocery store, as well as how fermented foods and drinks go a long way to looking after your gut health. And you know, your gut health is central to your general health. Go to aftersugarclub.com and click on the tab in the top menu, what to eat. And while you're there on the website at AfterSugarClub.com, download my five tips for getting rid of cravings. Whether you're an intermittent faster or not, cravings can really stop you from feeling free with your food. So download those five tips at AfterSugarClub.com and you can get more free resources and tips on the Life After Sugar YouTube channel the Life After Sugar Facebook page and come and subscribe to my Instagram account at mylifeaftersugar. That's where I post pictures of what I eat, what I do, sometimes some inspiring quotes or sometimes just pictures of our cat so that you can see that it's totally possible to live a fun and active life even if you don't eat sugar. And if you're ready to join the After Sugar Club community, which I created specially for health-conscious people and intermittent fasters who don't just want to change what they eat, they want to transform their relationship with sugar and make it a peaceful relationship where you don't need or miss sugar anymore. Then head on over to AfterSugarClub.com and click on the green button, Join the Club, to join us in the After Sugar Club private membership. Thank you for listening. That's it for this week. Keep in touch and see you soon for another episode.